This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So they start recalibrating their capacity for epistemic trust and mistrust, both through their experience and then by using you as a consultant to know when to trust and distrust. Then Fonagy says... After that healing process takes place, the most important place of psychotherapy is the client leaves your office with this new capacity to be able to tell when to trust and distrust and who to take in information from. And then they begin to interact in the social world and exercise this. And then they can ongoingly continue to update their working models in different environments, meet new people, go to a new job, be able to figure this out. And he says, this is like the most important healing process takes place after the therapy is done. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Building on decades of professional experience, this podcast tackles neurobiology, modern attachment, and more in an honest way that's helpful in healing humans. Your session begins now with Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey everyone, I'm Ann Kelly, and in today's episode, I get to talk with one of my favorite people, Steve Fenn about a topic that's super important to all of us, and that's trust. So for longtime listeners out there, you've heard Sue and I interview him, gosh, now it's several years ago, on the topic of conquering shame. We replayed that episode pretty recently. It's episode, I believe, 154. And people really, really responded and love Steve, and I think you will too. So who is Steve? He's a clinical psychologist. He's associate clinical professor at the University of Texas at Austin, and he is the president and founder of the Center for Therapeutic Assessment. So he teaches literally all over the world. And at the core of his trainings about assessment is the essential aspect of developing deep and trusting collaborative relationships for any real change to occur. Now, this is not always as easy as it sounds. So as you know right now, trust is at an extreme low. Everything from fake news to we can't trust our bodies and, and mistrust of political figures. You know, How do you decide who to trust, when to trust, and why? Communities and families have to have trust to thrive, and if we can't count on our partners, our parents, our children, or those that are running our government, it deteriorates our relationships and really creates chaos for our communities. And, you know, people have to make the mistake of trust being about being accurate and right. I see couples in my office where one expresses the lack of trust to their partner and the other one feels so frustrated because they feel that they're trustworthy, that if they've made a mistake, they've made up for it, or, you know, they're saying what they mean. And so the idea of not having trust runs much deeper than words and actions. And understanding that can make a huge difference in your relationships. I'm really thrilled to have Steve here, as you can tell. But before we jump in, I have an ask. If you guys find this information helpful and meaningful to you, we'd really appreciate it if you could stop and take a moment to rate and review us. That really helps other people find us. And also think about sending it on. And I also want to do a big shout out to our Patreon and Supercast members. Thank you very much for your support. Without you guys and our sponsors, we could not bring all this information to you for free. And it's important to us to spread the idea of security far and wide. All right, let's jump in. Hey, Steve, it's so good to have you back on the show. Oh, thank you, Anne. It's such a pleasure to be back. You and I and Sue did one of my most favorite episodes, actually, on shame. So some people are going to be familiar with you. So let's jump in and like tell us a little bit about yourself for those that haven't met you yet. Sure. I'm a clinical psychologist in Austin, Texas. I'm an associate clinical professor at the University of Texas at Austin. And I think my claim to fame is having sort of developed a method called therapeutic assessment that uses psychological assessment as a brief intervention with clients. We have a center for therapeutic assessment in Austin, Texas. There's one in Milan, Italy, and one in Tokyo, Japan. And there are groups in other places around the world. It's a method that's sort of caught on. And so I spend my time now mainly 
thinking and talking and doing research and writing and practicing therapeutic assessment. So I know today isn't going to be, you know, focused on therapeutic assessment, but you know, just so as we refer to it, it's such an amazing tool and process. So could you just give us maybe a short synopsis of what therapeutic assessment is? Yeah, it's a client-centered brief intervention. Clients are referred either by themselves or by another mental health professional. And it turns out it's really good for people with sort of persistent problems in living that they haven't been able to shift in other ways. Mm -hmm. And we start the process by asking people what it is they want to learn about themselves and what questions they have about themselves. And then we choose psychological tests, validated psychological tests that will help give us information that are relevant to their questions. And then we administer those tests. And we work with the client during the testing sessions to sort of look at their own test responses, sort of collaborate with us in interpreting them and discussing them. I mean, we have all our scores and our research on what the scores mean, but we really talk with the person about how that fits in their life and how it's relevant to their assessment questions. And then at the end, we review everything that the client and we sort of co-construct the answers to their questions. We write it all down in a letter in language that people can understand. Mm -hmm. And then we give it to them. And then they come back for a follow-up session six, eight weeks later and continue to talk about it. And the research shows that TA can really produce symptom change and it increases self-esteem and lowers shame. And that it also sort of helps people if they're doing other treatments. Their therapeutic alliance with subsequent therapists increases. They're more focused on what they want. And so it's kind of like a booster effect for other treatments. And we're still doing research on what it is about TA that works, but it seems that we help clients develop a different core narrative than they come in with, one that mm -hmm. is more accurate and coherent and compassionate and useful. And if you can shift that core narrative for clients, then they sort of go out into the world with a different point of view about the world. And then they interact with people and get new information. And so it, the research shows that the effects of the therapy assessment continue to grow after the assessment is done. And relevant to today, I got interested in epistemic trust, which is what we're going to talk about today, because... I've come to believe it may be one of the most potent underlying therapeutic variables that we're addressing through therapeutic assessment. And so it kind of explains a lot of research findings about TA. We knew it worked and we knew it worked well, but we had trouble really coming up with as coherent a theory as I would have liked about how that happens. And so when I happened upon this literature on epistemic trust, I got very excited. I bet when you're doing something that's so impactful and you can feel it, but you're like, why is it? And, <laughs> right. and, we, and we, you know, we even interview clients, like, why do you think this worked? And they tell us what they can. But, you know. <laughs> well, you emphasize the collaborative nature of it, that from the very beginning, they're the ones developing the questions about themselves. They have an openness to themselves of what do I want to know about myself? And that's where the whole process starts. It's very different than traditional assessment, of course, where you're often just sent by somebody, you walk in a room, take tests, maybe you get feedback at the end, but you're really not brought along through the process. That's so funny, Steve, as you mentioned the sort of the initial process, and I had my own visualization of walking in to a traditional therapeutic assessment, which I've done a lot of, I've done a lot of assessments, and I think about it from the client's perspective, that you're about to be analyzed, you're about to be looked at, you're about to be dissected, if you will. And even my whole body, as we were talking, I could feel my own anxiety of what that would be like to go, what are they looking for? What's going on? And, you know, I always talk about this with couples to be observed by somebody and analyzed by somebody, it kind of brings out our most anxious worst selves, don't you think? I did research early in my career about how people felt about traditional psychological assessment who had experienced it. And God, it was awful. I mean, really bad experiences, including being told things about themselves 
that they either didn't think were true or were true, but they weren't ready to hear and that were told in a shocking or shaming way or getting some psychological report at the end that they can't even make sense of mm -hmm. and combing through it and nobody to talk to about it. So we aspire to be very different from that kind of approach. Like, I think I'm going to have to go back and listen to our episode on shame, because as you were speaking, I'm thinking about some of the different assessments I've done. I used to work for the juvenile justice system, and we would do really deep assessments on these individuals. And just to think how powerfully difficult that must have been and the way that information was translated. And I'm like, ah, uh, you know, if I only knew then what I know now. Right, right. I think psychologists got out of touch with what it's like to be a client in an assessment. You know, we all have some core narrative about ourselves in the world that we've developed that makes sense mm -hmm. of the world and holds us together. And, you know, and if somebody's going to try to change that in a short period of time, I mean, it's a very emotional process. I mean, we do TA with not only adults, but with parents and children and adolescents and children and with couples. And, you know, talking to parents about this little bundle of energy that you always thought of as your gusto girl and we're so happy about whatever actually has ADHD. That's not a simple thing for parents. No, how overwhelming. A couple of years ago, you wrote an article, and I know you've continued to write and study and speak on the idea of the importance, as you mentioned, that maybe epistemic trust and the building of it in a therapeutic alliance is at the core to the deep change you're seeing, the deep effectiveness. So that is true. Let's talk about that today. I really want uh, our listeners to be able to understand why trust is so much at the core of so much. But you refer to it as epistemic trust. So talk to us about that. What exactly do you mean by epistemic trust? I have to refer to my colleagues, Peter Fonagy, and the people who work with him, and Dan Sperber, Georgie Gurgely, these are people who started writing from the point of view of evolutionary psychology about this concept of epistemic trust. Epistemic trust is trust in the relevance and accuracy of interpersonally transmitted information. So if I tell you something and you mm -hmm. have epistemic trust with me, then you're likely to believe it and incorporate it and sort of take it in and use it. This really is what any of us who are doing psychotherapy are trying to have happen with our clients. Mm -hmm. You know, they have a particular way of thinking about themselves, and we're trying to help them think about things a little bit differently. Object relations, people call this the internal working model. So you want to create a process where that goes very well, and you help the client take in new information and believe it. So epistemic trust is a huge factor in psychotherapy. And then what mm -hmm. Fonagy and his colleagues have written a lot about is that many of the clients that come to see us have difficulties with epistemic trust. He talks about two types of difficulties. They might be in a state of epistemic hypervigilance where they can't take in new information and they block it and they're very skeptical and they mm -hmm. just won't listen to it. And, you know, it's sort of a rigid place where you can't modify your internal working models. Mm -hmm. Or the other problem you sometimes see is epistemic hypovigilance where clients take in information without even testing or thinking, does it rational? Does it make sense? Does this person who's telling it to me have my best interest in mind or are they just trying to sell me a used car you know <laughs> this kind of stuff and that a lot of the clients we see you'll see both types of errors people right. who won't take in information from one source but then they take information from other sources and you go now why did you believe that guy but not that guy you know we call this the broken trust meter mm -hmm. and a lot of clients who come to us have this issue. And then it gets really hard to work with them in psychotherapy. These are the clients who are considered the toughest clients because you can't modify their internal working models, you know. So it's a very relevant variable for all kinds of psychology work. On this podcast, we talk a great deal about security and insecurity, insecure attachment. And do you see this related as we talk about the idea of over-trusting others which would be an example of under-trusting yourself. I'm going to trust anybody. I'm not going to listen to myself versus I don't trust anybody in the world or versus I trust myself more than anybody. Do you see that related to attachment? 
So again, this evolutionary theory, it's called the theory of natural pedagogy, which Dan Sperber and other people have written about. It's really brilliant about this. It says, you're thrown into the world. There's predators out there who are going to want to eat you and give you misinformation. And there's other people who really care about you and want you to grow and survive. How do you tell the difference about whom to trust and whom not to trust? Well, the most reliable indicator is a secure attachment figure because that person is invested in your survival, both, you know, evolutionarily, you know, it's your parent or your tribe member or, you know, tribe members are auxiliary attachment figures, you know, they want you to grow and be better and be able to help them in the community, you know, and survive. And you're born with that instinct, right? You're born with this instinct. This instinct, right. Yeah. So the people with the epistemic hypervigilance and hypovigilance, presumably, and it's, you know, the research is really coming, you know, had people in attachment figure roles who were not trustworthy, who didn't have their best interests in mind, who didn't protect them, who misled them, who had their own narcissistic interests at the forefront rather than trying to do what was best for them. But because you're biologically sort of prepared to trust your attachment figures, it goes all kerflui. If you had to trust people who were untrustworthy, because you couldn't go to bed at night or get up in the morning and be okay without that kind of vision of them as people who are helping you. If you had to do that, then this whole system goes kerflui. That makes a lot of sense. And even if they do have your best interests at heart, or they believe they do, they may themselves have so much going on inside with their own inability to trust themselves that they can't give off a trustworthy feeling. So they could very deeply care about your best interest almost over and above their own at times, but it still doesn't build a sense of, I can trust you to have my best interest. Well, you know, secure attachment figures not only care about you and want to help you, but they also set limits on you. They find that place where helping you would damage me and they're able to draw a line there. And so I think clients are testing us all the time, both to find out whether they can trust us, but whether also we can hold boundaries with them. And if you want to move into an auxiliary attachment figure position with them, you have to be able to do that well, um, pass those little tests that are happening all the time. I love control mastery theory, which I don't know if you've talked about on the show, but clients are testing us all the time, hoping we'll pass these tests that come from experiences they've had earlier and you know they'll bring up things to see if we'll shame them and when we don't shame them we pass the test but they'll also see if they can get us to sell ourselves down the river and when we say gosh no i'm sorry this is my limit then they kind of go oh okay (laughs) (laughs) their whole body knows their whole if you could see steve you would see his body just relax and so yeah what you're saying is we need both right we need this healthy i see you i'm there for you i'm gonna be willing to hear what you need and not shame you. And I have a sense of self. I'm not going to lose myself in you. So if you push too far, I'm going to hold a boundary and you can even just hear it. I think there's been more emphasis and attachment on the caring, giving, responding part than on the boundary setting sometimes. And uh, therapists get really confused about it. I mean, a woman came to consult with me 20 years ago And she asked what she should do because one of her clients had moved in under her house under the porch. And she was very distressed by that. And what should she do? And I said, well, have you thought of calling the police or (laughs) telling your client she has to move? Oh, no, no, I couldn't do that. She'd be wounded by it and whatever. Well, you know, so that's an example of the not holding the boundary. Well, and it's an example of not holding trust in others. Because if you can't set your own boundary, then... Our body knows that we can take advantage of you or somebody else can. So all of a sudden, that idea of this is a trustworthy relationship comes into question. Yeah, Yes, it's an empathic error. That wasn't actually good for the client to permit that. So it's the client's own attachment system being unable to really think about what's good for the client. So back to Fanagy, what he talks about is, Attachment figures are the people you should have epistemic trust with and people who are in this auxiliary attachment figure role who prove themselves to be trustworthy. And the mechanism through which people show you that they're a secure attachment figure is mentalization. 
which right. I think you've talked about on the show. So mm-hmm. seeing, you know, holding your mind in mind. I love that definition of mentalization. Me too. Truly being able to get in the client's shoes, understand what the client needs, and being able to show the client that they're a unique individual who you see as separate from yourself, you have your needs separate from their needs, and you're committed to holding the client in mind. So good mentalizers are the people who we should trust. But what happens is if you've had these early attachment experiences that are so disruptive, then you don't know what cues to pay attention to. You start paying attention to cues that really aren't that important. So I'll believe somebody because he's of the same political party of me or the same race, or because he says something that hits something instead of saying, wait, now, is this thing that he's saying, is this way he's acting? Is he showing he actually has my best interests in mind Mm -hmm. or not? So they make these mistakes and then it perpetuates that epistemic hypervigilance because in the end it doesn't work out. Because you start to trust somebody who's untrustworthy and then it starts to prove your theory right. And you might be attracted to people that are based on your own internal working model and that might oversell one position. And it's like, oh, this sounds familiar. And then the letdown gets repeated over and over and over. You know, the optimal version is clients have epistemic trust and mistrust, well-balanced. So if they meet somebody new and the person's talking to them, they're sort of in their mind, consciously or unconsciously thinking, okay, now this thing that he just said, now is that for him or is it for me? Or let me figure out, no, that one's about, something he wants from me, you know? And so, oh, this guy actually is kind of extending himself. And, oh, look, he did something that might not be exactly in his best interest, but he thinks is good for me. Oh, okay, this is a person I can start to rely on. The word in this literature is the person becomes a deferential source. We want to mentalize our clients, pass enough of these attachment tests become an auxiliary secure attachment figure and become a deferential source. And then they're prone to believe and take in information that we give them. And in order to do that, this whole process is really actually in the mentalization process, being able to really put ourselves in their shoes, to really be able to mentalize them. It isn't, how do I work really hard to get you to trust me? It's actually putting yourself in a state of trustworthiness And this is what we can do in any of our relationship. We're speaking about a therapeutic relationship, but this is so important in any of our relationships to learn the skill of mentalizing, to be able to go in one, stay in oneself, but also be able to mentalize the experience and be in the shoes of the other, to be able to have that kind of reflective functioning about being able to hold my own needs, but also being able to feel and see yours. Just a little self-promotion. That's the name of one of my early books on therapeutic assessment is In Our Client's Shoes. So that's the goal. And then what we believe is these psychological tests actually help us get in the client's shoes. They're empathy magnifying glasses that allow us to see what the client's internal working model is, where it's off, and give us sort of a roadmap of if I want to help this person have a different perception of themselves, how do I present the information little by little, what's going to be most threatening, what, et cetera. And then that's how the tests really help. That makes a lot of sense. And the idea of asking them what they want to know. We talked about internal working model. I guess you get a real reflection of matching where they are matching where they are at the moment and what they really want to know so that the information you're giving them, they are ready. We laugh on this podcast a lot because one of my favorite concepts is curiosity. And so Sue always laughs. If I can get the word curiosity into any kind of conversation, I tend to do it. So if you match their curiosity, it's a sign that their internal working model is open, right? To like, oh, okay, now this is what I want to know about me. I guess you learn so much about where they are And then you're able to match where they are rather than, I guess, the, I know I can fail at that sometimes, where I want the client to be versus where they are. Like, and I so want them to be that I get caught up in my own need for my client because I can see the vision, but that's not where they are. And if I rush it, instead, I induce anxiety and shame and disconnect. And it makes neurobiologic sense too, you know. So parents might come in and they're really upset about their child and they say, oh, he does this and he's terrible and blah, 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 whatever. And uh, I just listen and 
whatever. And then after a while, I say, great, what's your question about that? What kind of question do you want to have answered about that for the assessment? And then they might go on and I, oh, but yeah, you know, go on. And they're very emotional. And I just listen. I'm really empathic. And then I go, so, and, and what do you want to know about that? What question could we come up with that would be helpful to you? And they go, well, why does he do that? And how do we get him to stop? And at that point, you see a psychophysiological change in the client because curiosity has come online. You know, we know from our neurobiology literature, the exploratory system can't be activated when the attachment system is aroused. If your little child is scared that they're going to be safe, they're not going to go off and play with the toys in the corner of the room. You know, <laughs> If we want the exploratory system to be engaged, which is a key to taking in new information, then first we really have to sort of be a good listener and a good mentalizer for the client. And then they calm down. And then these questions they come up with are open doors through which you can give new information and it will be more likely to go in. Parents years ago came in and there were complaints from the teacher that their seven-year-old daughter was looking out the window a lot in class and didn't seem to pay attention. And their question for the assessment was, does she have ADD? And if not, what's causing her to be so distractible? So we started testing her and we found out she was actually having childhood psychosis. So she started talking to me about the people outside the window, the elves and the other animals that she was talking to in her mind. And it wasn't a complete surprise to me because the mother had schizophrenia in her family. She had a brother and an uncle who had been schizophrenic, but the parents weren't at all prepared for this. But because they had asked this question, is it ADD? And if not, what is it? Which was an essential, and if not, what is it? Is it ADHD? It's yes, no, versus what is it? The deeper curiosity of what could be happening. So it That's, gave yeah. me a window to begin working with them. And I had videotaped my conversation with the girl about the fantasy figures she was talking to with her mind, et cetera. And I showed it to them. And then they came to the understanding of what it was without me having to like bring in something and beat them with it. Oh, wow. That's really powerful. The act of the curiosity and, and I guess as a, as a therapist, we have to find the curiosity, not the knowing. We can so easily think we're in the knowing as a therapist, rather than being able to do mind sight and to open our idea of the curiosity about their process and what they're going through to help them find their own curiosity. And I agree with you. So eliciting curiosity, and I think curiosity is infectious. If the client can have this feeling like we're sitting on the edge of our chair, working hard with our mind to try to understand their experience and thinking carefully and asking questions about it and really trying to get in their shoes, then that creates an open door for epistemic trust. Well, and I think of that so often in working with couples and the idea that like you were mentioning the complaints, you know, we tend to the complaint, the complaint, the complaint, the complaint, and you know, we can feel that. That's our first observation that something's off. We feel our system, something's off, we can tell. So we're complaining about it. And it's so interesting to help people. But what is it that you are needing? What is it that you are wanting? And to get the curiosity, how is this impacting you? And to be able to get somebody to talk about that, even with the other person, rather than just complain, it opens up that sense of self-curiosity and other, and why are they doing this? Why do you think this is a dynamic in your relationship? When we do couples TAs, at the beginning, the couple poses questions about themselves and about the couple relationship. You know, the classic couple comes in, he's such a, and she's such a, you know, and then they can't pose those types of questions, but they can say, when my partner does this, why do I have such an immediate negative reaction to it? And what could I do instead? Or how can the two of us better agree upon child rearing or whatever it is they're having conflict about? And so that, again, creates an openness to modifying the internal working model that my husband's doing this because he's a bad person and selfish instead of, oh, well, maybe he's had some trauma too. And when I do this, he gets activated and then he gets rigid and I could react a different way and he'll be more flexible. Yeah, the bad person is because I know this, you know, you're in a state of knowing versus a state of curiosity. So in thinking about 
how just I'm convinced how important epistemic trust is building it and being able to stay in tune with it. Two questions come to mind. One is as listeners out there, how would we know to recognize whether we have just in our own internal working model, kind of a sense of maybe you mentioned hypervigilant trust or hypovigilant. What are the signs that we might be able to recognize? Maybe I don't have the deepest level of secure epistemic trust as I think. Well, again, uh, in therapy assessment, we have this idea of the broken trust meter and clients often relate to it. So I'll say to them, and I might see this on a psychological test. I might say, I wonder if you know, sometimes you have trouble knowing whom to trust and whom not to trust. And you might have a pattern in your life, tell me if it's true, where sometimes you tend to kind of put up a guard and not let people in and not trust them. And then other times you kind of drop your guard and you trust people too easily. And what we often see is people go back and forth between kind of like getting hurt, going, why did I believe that person? He really, you know, mm-hmm. sold me a used car, you know, I, I, how could I believe that? Now I can see that I did it. And then go back into a place that I'm going to be very skeptical and not let anybody in. And then after a while, your desire for connection and your affiliative biology makes you want to connect again. So then you drop the guard again, and you go back and forth between these two poles. And sometimes people really get that and sort of identify with that. And, you know, I myself used to have that problem. I had a pretty traumatic early childhood and I just had a string of incidents where I was just getting taken advantage of by people. And finally, one day I just said, this has got to stop, you know, I have to get better at this. What's the common denominator here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Office, he said, I've been waiting. You know? <laughs> so. <laughs> so what's the process then? What is the process once you recognize I can really see these patterns of either over-trusting individuals and then being taken advantage of, or I guess also under-trusting. I think sometimes the example of under-trusting where you so trust yourself is harder to recognize. Like it's just that the world is incompetent. The world is incompetent. And I actually trust myself a lot. I don't have trust issues because I know, I listen, I do research. And so sometimes that end is a really harder one to recognize, isn't it? When you believe in yourself so much that you don't trust the world and you think your expertise is it. And so you're kind of a closed system, but you feel like for a good reason. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think you're describing paranoia. Well, on some level, let's do talk about paranoia. But I, I think I'm also sometimes just talking about narcissism too, so which you know can have flavors of the same thing in a way. But yeah, I think paranoia or somewhere where you can't seem to, you seem to overtrust yourself and undertrust the environment. I'll say three things. So first, Fonagy talks about the importance of psychotherapy and sort of healing these kinds of things. And there's this wonderful thing that he talks about the three virtuous cycles, which I really love. He says, so first, the client comes in, they don't really trust you, they're there. And your job is to mentalize them, hold them in mind, show them that you have their best interests in mind, and also you can set boundaries. And this is the process through which they begin to see you as a differential source and take in and modify their working models. And he says, so the first process is the client learning that you're a trustworthy person and they can begin to trust you. And they'll test you in all kinds of ways. And then you pass that. Then he says, there's a second virtuous process where this begins to restore their capacity because they've had an experience. Again, their early attachment figures weren't trustworthy. They had to trust untrustworthy people. They begin to have an experience of what it's like to be in deep relationship with a truly trustworthy person. And this begins to heal their own capacity for epistemic trust and knowing what cues to pay attention to. The trust meter begins to be calibrated. And during this phase of the therapy, they might even start using you, like they'll come in and say, so I wanted to tell you about this new guy I just started dating and I'm not really sure whether he's a good guy or not. Can I tell you a bunch of things? And the therapist listens very carefully and says, "Mm, that one, 
would make me be on alert too. And they go, oh, okay. I wasn't sure whether that was right or not. And you go, right, yeah, right. no, I would be a little skeptical. I mean, I'm not saying you should just never see them again, but that's one to keep in mind, you know. So they start recalibrating their capacity for epistemic trust and mistrust, both through their experience and then by using you as a consultant to know when to trust and distrust. Then Fonagy says, after that healing process takes place, the most important place of psychotherapy is the client leaves your office with this new capacity to be able to tell when to trust and distrust and who to take in information from. And then they begin to interact in the social world and exercise this. And then they can ongoingly continue to update their working models in different environments, meet new people, go to a new job, be able to figure this out. And he says, this is like the most important healing process takes place after the therapy is done. Isn't that just lovely? That is so lovely. When they can actually take what's inside, the shifts that they've made in their own process of their working model of themselves and of other people. You are a trustworthy person. How you related to me gives me this sense of, oh, I can trust my own meter. I can use this meter instead of, I need to keep returning to, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? This person, this person? You're like, okay, no. I kind of am starting to learn the signs of when somebody really has my best interest at heart or when somebody is able to reflect and see me and hold themselves, not give up too much of themselves. And, you know, our clients initially are not able really to trust their guts about who to trust and not trust because the gut doesn't work anymore because of these traumatic early attachment experiences. But after therapy works for a while, then they can just go, "Mm, something doesn't feel right. So I'm going to be a little skeptical, you know, and we have to honor that. Like one of the things I do when I'm doing therapeutic assessment, like I might be talking about a test result and the client goes, Mm, yeah, so tell me again about this test. Are you sure it's kind of validated? And I'll go, oh, I'm so glad to see your skepticism. Yes. Boy, I think that's so healthy because, you know, there's a bunch of tests from magazines and whatever that have no scientific validity whatsoever. So please hold on to that skepticism and then listen to what I say and see if it makes sense to you. So I don't try to talk the client out of their right. skepticism that epistemic mistrust is a very healthy variable. And I think some younger therapists will say, no, you can trust me, really, you know, (laughs) instead of like honoring that kind of mistrust. I love that, that healthy skepticism and honoring it and helping people voice it. And the other thing you're doing is that you aren't getting challenged by it, especially if we're raised in an environment where to question authority or to question somebody has been shamed or knocked out of you or this idea that I can go, wait, Steve, you just said that, like, tell me about that test or I I don't know, you know, say more. And that we as individuals, and, 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 you know, we keep talking about the therapeutic relationship, which is an essential part of all of this, but we're talking about other relationships, the ability to be able to receive skepticism without it immediately being a threat to our own internal working model and to be able to send the message, oh, you can question me and I can hold that, right? I can hold myself and go, no, that's a good thought of skepticism. Let's get back to that. Instead of I'm going to shame you like, okay, if you're going to doubt me, you know, it makes me think of this one situation that I was just talking about with a few people. And that's of the individual that may sometimes feel themselves, you know, if you come to me for advice, right, this is an expert or a consultant, and you come to for me to advice and I give you advice, and then you question me, why are you coming to me? Why come to me? Exactly. And really, that's a non-mentalizing reaction, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Really, you're not really in the client's shoes, right? And, uh, you know, this reminds me, some of the infant developmental research on epistemic trust is so cute. Like they have an experiment that they've done with securely attached infants and mothers and when there isn't a secure attachment. And the experiment is there are these stuffed animals that are like two thirds horse and one third cow. And then they have the mother present it to the toddler, you know, who's two, three years old. And she'll either give the name that goes with the two-thirds part or the name that goes with the one-third part. So she'll hand the two-thirds cow, one-third horse to the infant and say, this is a horse, (laughs) when two-thirds of it is cow. Cow, 
And the securely attached infants exercise epistemic mistrust with the mother. And they go, no, it isn't. It's a cow. And then they laugh together. But the insecurely attached infants don't know when to distrust their mother when she's giving them wrong information. And I can't remember, read this, but I can't remember that. How do they distinguish? How does an insecure, more avoidantly connected child respond different from the more preoccupied? I'm going to have to look into that. But insecure in general don't know when to not trust the mother. The mother's giving them something that's two thirds a horse, saying it's a cow. And I guess it's also, am I safe enough to disagree? I can imagine certain people with their parents as you grow up, if your dad or mom said that's a horse and you said, no, it's a cow, that discussion right there becomes really threatening. Yeah, exactly. So secure attachment is a protective variable in terms of healthy epistemic trust and mistrust. And when you don't have secure attachment, that's when this starts to go all kerflui. And then it's our job as therapists to be empathic to this. And, you know, Again, when a client disagrees with me about a test finding, I mean, first of all, I might be wrong. And I invite the client. I'm going to tell you something. Feel free to agree. Feel free to disagree. These tests are not perfect, whatever. Mm -hmm. But if I'm pretty sure it's right and the client disagrees with me, I think there's a part of them trying not to get eaten by a predator here. This is not personal to me. This is a neurobiologic system that's evolutionally built in that's gone a little bit kerflui. And so my job is to go back and think, have I passed the tests well? Have I truly been mentalizing the client? What's a better way that I could have talked about this that might have scaffolded this understanding rather than me giving the information all in one piece, you know? How do I collaborate with the client to test out whether this is right so that the client comes to the understanding rather than me necessarily trying to shove it down their throats? Or rather than just saying, oh, they're just defensive. That's such a painful idea, though, when, it, when you're just classified as resistant, when you're really having some natural questioning and that it could push it. It's healthy. Yeah, no, I like uh, complexity theory and chaos theory, you know, and they talk about driving forces and restraining forces in complex systems. And the restraining forces, the resistance is about holding the system together so it doesn't disintegrate. So if the client's saying no, they're not in a place to take in that piece of information right now, or I've delivered it in a way that doesn't fit. Well, and if you're presenting a piece of information, I imagine that they're not ready to receive. If their system and their nervous system is not ready and it's too threatening to what they see in their internal working model, for them to really take that in, I imagine, could be overwhelming, could be totally counterproductive. Yeah. When I'm training therapists and people for therapeutic assessment, I really, really try to give them this sense of what a mentalizing figure a differential source really looks like there's a videotape that i show in my workshop on epistemic trust of this teacher who was hired to go into this failing classroom in the south this was a video that was on the news some years ago what he did was he invited all the students as they came in the classroom each day to develop a little individualized personalized dance step like stomp their feet twice, turn around and whatever. The video is of him standing at the classroom where these 25 students come in and he memorized this dance step for every one of these students as they came in. And he would do it with them and then they would go in the classroom and then the next one would come up and he would remember that dance step and do it. And then the next one. And to me, this is a beautiful example of mentalization. I see you as a unique individual, each with your own dance step. And I want to relate to you through your dance step. And I'm going to memorize. You're important enough to me that I'm going to learn this and show you that I'm there uh-huh. with you in a moment. The end of the semester, all the students were passing. Wow. I'm sure he did other things in the classroom besides this. Right. That was his whole attitude. And so, you know, when the client comes in and sits down in the chair, Mm. they should feel this interest, this limit setting caring, you know, this balance, this trying to get in their shoes. This should be the experience every time. And that's going to move us into a place with the client where we create a relationship where they can begin to heal epistemic trust. As poetic as that is, now it's bringing up my neuro nerd brain. As you talk about this, it's like, okay, what is it about 
the idea of deeply being seen. Those kids were felt when they did their step. They felt felt. And it, so often people that struggle with connection will talk about he doesn't feel me or she doesn't see me as connected. She doesn't think that we're intimate. Like, I don't know what it means. I don't know what it means. Like, it's like I'm here, I work, you know. And it's this feeling that is so hard to talk about when we're talking about intimacy. And that is the feeling of being felt, felt by your teacher, felt by your mother, felt by your partner, felt by your therapist. And how important that experience is that it could lead to such monumental change that you're talking about in the classroom. So what do you feel about the feeling of felt from a neurobiological perspective? Well, you might know more about this than I do, Anne, but what I think the research shows, so for example, children with secure attachment experiences have more connective fibers going from left frontal to the emotion centers of the brain. You know, Daniel Siegel does that thing with his hand. If you've had good attachment figures, this part of the brain is connected to this. So when this gets excited, you don't flip your lid. You know, and it has to do with our inborn neurobiology of living in tribes, you know, and having to have this kind of mindset with each other. And I think we're actually changing our clients' brains and they're developing their left frontal lobe, they're able to engage in more self-reflection and their emotion regulation changes. And I don't know what the neurobiology of the epistemic trust is. I haven't read about that, but I'm sure there's something that changes about that too. Yeah, I'm sure there's probably so much we don't know about what happens neurologically in that, but I think it sounds like you're hitting it in a really articulate way and that if our body, those kids walking in, I'm going to go back to that example, those kids walking into the school with a likely have a lot of stress outside of school, they have a stress going in, they think they're not going to be able to learn, so they might have tuned out that part where it stays less in the learning centers of their brain because they're under stress. And like you said, like that sense of knowing, that sense of being seen, isn't it? It's just sending your whole body. I do that with you when you talk, right? Don't you guys, listeners out there, as you listen to Steve talk, your whole body just goes, ah, I can trust him. Like It's true. But what happens in that is it just, it opens the body up to be able to relax and have access, right? Like, because we're not fully in a stress mode. So that feeling of being seen, it's a sense of, I can trust this tribe. I can trust this person. I can relax. And it's so powerful. I mean, I have a powerful experience I've written about when I'm, I was in my graduate training. We were in a psychopathology course and we would learn about a certain disorder and then we would be taken to University of Minnesota Hospital and the professor of the course would interview a patient in the hospital who was suffering from that kind of disorder. And I remember one week when we were learning about depression, there was a man in his 60s who was in the hospital in an absolute severe major depression, almost catatonic. Mm -hmm. The nursing staff were unable to communicate with him. He was just hunched over. And apparently his wife had died three months earlier, a long marriage, long good marriage. And then he'd gone into this place and eventually he was hospitalized. And mm -hmm you know, our professor decides to interview this client who can't talk, who's just like hunched over in this catatonic state. And I thought, what is going to happen here? And this brilliant guy, we come up and he, he puts his chair next to the client and he says, Mr. Jones, I'm here. I wanted to talk with you about your situation. And if you don't mind, I'm just going to like take your hand here. And then if you can hear me and if this is okay for me to be here, would you just squeeze my hand? And the client squeezed his hand. Then he said, I know you're not really able to talk much about what you're experiencing right now. So very respectfully, I'm going to make some guesses. And if I get it right, would you squeeze my hand? Oh. He says, I think you're in a complete state of utter despair because your wife has died and you don't know what is going to happen to you now. The client squeezes his hand. He says, and I think you must just feel so totally alone and in despair that it just feels like it's not worth living. The client squeezes his hand. He goes on like this. Ten minutes later, the client is sitting up talking to us. I can feel it as we're talking. I don't know if anybody else out there, I can just feel as you say, just that he didn't go to his verbal where he was functioning. He had such mentalization that he was able to be right there and meet them, give him such a felt sense. 
Right. And there were a couple of times he said something, the client didn't squeeze his hand and then he would just regroup and use it to get better. And the client should, and then I thought, I want to learn how to do that. (laughs) Yes. And to think about having somebody in, if you think about states and times you've been there and you felt so alone and you think, I can't talk, I can't be there because you imagine needing to be there in the way that society says you need to be. So you just stay alone and you don't reach out and to imagine somebody being able to reach in where you are, meet you rather than insist. Just that experience can begin to energize us again, bring hope. That's so beautiful. And in relationships, sometimes what makes this hard is the idea of that our system being able to have such strength in it and trust that we can be in a relationship with somebody that needs us that way and be there without then losing where we are. We can like be there for our partner, be there for our child and not have to explain ourselves or defend ourselves, right? To be able to go, I see you, I can see why this is so hard for you. Even if it's something I've done, I could see why this is hard for you. That really takes some internal work to reach a place of being able to get there. And be able to communicate while mentalizing the other person, right? I know this might be hard for you to hear, but I'm not going to be able to do this thing that you so much want because it would be really bad for me. Almost a perfect place to end, except that I can't help but wanting your perspective related to this concept of epistemic trust about what's going on in the world today and how I know me personally, just this idea of how difficult it is to have a balance of how to find healthy trust and healthy vigilance, how to do a balance right now with we not, not being able to really trust our media, our government. A lot of people are confused about what cues to pay attention to, to trust or not trust. Or even with a pandemic, how do you do your loved ones? This idea of, I imagine that we are, as a culture, much more stirred up in our system of trust and being able to have a healthy radar. Do you have any thoughts about that? And it's kind of a big lob to you, Steve. All kinds of thoughts about it. I mean, just on the larger political scene, I think both many people have had insecure attachment experiences. And so they get confused about who to trust and who not to trust. But then I think also like our political figures that we're supposed to trust haven't shown us that they're always acting in our best interests. They're beholden to lobbyists. They're voting to stay in power rather than what their constituents really need. And I think this has disorganized a lot of us about what to pay attention to, to decide whether to trust or not trust. And if you have these early attachment experiences that didn't work out, then you get even more confused, I think. So I think there's a lot of that going on. And then I guess also we would say that you know, we were talking earlier that a lot of stress and cortisol activation in our body, which we are highly experiencing as a culture right now throughout the world, that also makes it hard, right? Because our body's in a more state of self-protection than ever before. And then you're inundated. And I, yeah, I don't know if you saw Porges's little article about how polyvagal theory applies to the pandemic, you know, that all of us are in a state of high alert, you know, and then... Mm how would we normally settle that down? It would be through a human contact and we can't do that either. And people are actually dangerous. So we're all, you know, aroused place, unable to set ourselves down. I think that's going on, but like the pandemic stuff. So I saw a family earlier this year where one family member was an anti-vaxxer and the other people were furious and trying to get her to get vaccinated. And you could just see this battle going on and nobody was mentalizing anybody, you know? Right. So what I did is just slow things down. And I talked to the person who was against the vaccine and I just said, so really we so much want to understand really, and this is not about give us your reasons so we can counter them and force you. I really, really want to understand where you're coming from. And so I just brought curiosity and listening and reflecting. So then the family kind of caught on and they were doing that too. And then they would kind of slip out and go, no, we want you to get this because you're putting us in, you know, and I go, wait, slow, everybody slow down, you know. And then I asked the anti-vaxxer person to try to get in their shoes, you know, two sessions, they had reached an agreement. Nice. 
I think that's something to tap on because we could do that for political disagreements. The divide that we see in families is just horrific. I mean, with my friends, not just my clients, but with my friends who can't go home to see their mom or because of this political divide and, you know, are you vaxxed or not vaxxed now has become part of the whole political landscape, right? Who you're voting for and what it means. It seems like that some of our political system have really taken advantage of creating just a deep level of mistrust of one another out there. And so we just live in this sense of mistrust, which we've spoken about today when we don't have trust and we're in activation, we're defended, we're rigid, we're not open. And yeah, my sister and brother-in-law are of a complete different political persuasion than my husband and I are. And he finds it painful to go visit them. And I understand completely. But when I go and they say something that's very different than how I see about the word, I just, you know, it's easier for me because it's not my blood family. But I just say, oh, I'm, where did you learn that? And tell me about it. And, and I'll say, but don't you think that's sort of inconsistent with this? How do you think about that? And, and it goes really well. And they've actually ah. shifted a little bit. And maybe I've shifted a little bit, too. That's the core, right? We're getting down to the nuts and bolts of how to handle our system right now. It, but it's, I'll, I'll admit sometimes finding my own curiosity when somebody has such a threatening experience, God, that is the hardest step, getting in touch with my own body, my own threat, when I can't find my own curiosity. We make it sound easy, right? Just get curious. But when you feel threatened and you feel like somebody's position, like I guess if, if I am believe in vax and my spouse is not vaxing, like that is can feel like a direct threat. Being a mentalizer requires incredible emotion regulation, doesn't it? Because <laughs> so, again, you can't get into that exploratory system if your attachment system is on fire, right? So it seems like that would be the step, right? The step is really kind of try to get your own emotional activation. Calm it down. Then it activates their curiosity. Although it's really hard because you have to be able to ask that question where you really have curiosity, because if you're like, well, what do you think about this? You can feel in the body if that person's not open to actually... To counter it, right. Yes, yes. yes. No, no, exactly. No, I mean, we all have to be Zen masters to do this well, right? But, you know, we're, we're aspiring. But I like it. So if it just as uh, some how-tos as we wrap up, is like you're saying, kind of get control of your own nervous system. See if you can mentalize the perspective of the other asking some questions, notice if it kind of threatens you. Asking with true curiosity, give the sense of you want so much to understand their point of view. Don't give up your own point of view and then say, oh, I see. And then what do you think about this way of thinking about it? Oh, so I think that creates all kinds of possibilities. Well, and the funny thing is we used to be able to, I don't know if this is your experience, but we used to be able to do that people being on opposite political divides, at least in, in the United States, not necessarily everywhere, used to be something that could be part of a dialogue that didn't lead to the level of hostility and cutoff. People feel survival's at stake, right? Right. So I think reminding ourselves, right? That, that right, and pandemic has not helped. <laughs> yes, it's so true. Like, like Parker said, we're just all in this constant state of danger arousal. So. <laughs> so calming our body down, it seems like that might be the sum up of, is really taking care of our own body so that we have the capacity for mentalization. We have the capacity for reflective functioning. And we're just aware that we can get there and that that other political perspective actually isn't a core threat. It is just a difference. Like we can hold self and other it's a challenge, an ongoing challenge for all of us, certainly. Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show. Great. And I'll just mention I'm doing workshops on epistemic trust and mistrust around the world. And so if people go to the Therapeutic Assessment website, there aren't any posted right now, but uh, I continue to do them. I continue to do my shame workshop and, we, and the Therapeutic Assessment Institute continues to do other workshops on therapeutic assessment too. And your workshops are great. I've attended your one on shame. And I think I've attended several things by you, but you will not find a better. And I know you're not the only instructor at the therapeutic assessment and you would hire and train so many good people and they've trained as well. But I really highly recommend. Of course, we will put that in our show notes. Are you going to do one in Austin? I will eventually. I will. Yeah. I like to do them in person, some of them, because I do a lot of experiential exercises, but we found out they can work online too. So I'm hoping to do one in Austin after where everybody can get together in a big room again. Well, sign me up. I'll be there. Well, thank you so much for joining. Like I said, everything he just mentioned will be linked in our show notes so you can find all of that information there. 
Thank you very much, Steve, for being here. And thank you guys for joining us today. I hope you got as much out of this episode as I did. And if you find this powerful, please send it to those that you think might otherwise benefit from it and take the time to rate and review us. That always helps people find us. All right. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you around the bin. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.